Good evening, everybody. Welcome to our last session of our amazing uh, book of Daniel. As we begin, let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful the way you have guided us and led us through these different chapters week by week that we've been able to see a better glimpse of you and your great plan of salvation. Now tonight, as we turn our thoughts to you, we ask for the infilling of your spirit. Come into our hearts. Use us, O Lord, to thy glory. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We're going to begin with our review of last week's session. Now again, we've been going by who the kings were. Not necessarily what the chapter number is, but who the kings were. And if you recall, chapter 6 is the one that we did last week. Tonight, we're going to do 10 and 12. I know that's quite a jump, but if you look at the kings, it's really not. Notice that in chapter 6, Daniel's chapter 3 and chapter 6 have a common theme, we discovered. We also discovered that Darius the Mede wanted to elevate Daniel above the other presidents because of his integrity, and this aroused their jealousy. Now, a question came up. Originally, there were three presidents. Uh, how was it distributed? Some feel that each of the presidents had 40 of the princes or governors under them. The governors were under the princes, actually, but that they each had 40 under them. And when Daniel was elevated to first president, it may have reorganized and had 60 under each of the remaining two. So just to clarify that point, there's discussion about that, but I'm going by the information that I took my material from. Notice that also flattering the king's pride, the wise men caused him to violate the first commandment of God and accept worship from men that didn't belong to him. It belonged alone to God. So we see here that a commandment of God and a religious law was being promoted, and that put Daniel, as it will in the end time, God's remnant people, it puts them in the position, whom shall I serve? Shall I stand up for the commandments of men and worship the teachings and the uh, gods of men or that of the true God of Scripture. Now, God blessed and delivered Daniel from the lion's den because of his faithfulness, even under adversity. And God isn't necessarily going to deliver his end-time people from difficult times. He's not going to rapture them away, but rather like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they will go through a time of trouble, but he will go with them through it and bring them out victorious. And then also, the last point I want to make is that Darius recognized and honored Daniel's God, and so should we. Tonight, as we progress, we're going to do first chapter 10. Now, if I move along a little quicker, it's simply because I want to do chapter 10 and chapter 12. 10 and 12 go together. If you look at the kings who are ruling and so forth, and also what they're talking about, those chapters go together. So we'll begin with chapter 10. 
It begins the first four verses. It talks about the time of the vision that Daniel had. Notice in 10.1 it says, In the third year of Cyrus, now, Darius the Mede is dead. Cyrus is on the throne. In the third year of King Cyrus, the king of Persia, a thing was revealed unto Daniel. Now Daniel's the one who's having the vision this time. It was revealed unto Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar. That's his Babylonian name. And the thing was true. But the time appointed was long. The authenticity of this vision is established, but it goes millennia into the future. And he understood the thing, and he had understanding of the vision. Well, he had understanding of the vision, but you see... Daniel had had an early part of the vision and now it's being extended on as we get into this chapter and he had questions about it. There were still parts of it he needed clarification on. Now Darius the Mede was dead and Cyrus was in his third year. Now they may have started off together, co-regency. Darius was left behind to rule Babylon while Cyrus moved on, so how long after the death of Cyrus this is, we don't know. could have been a year, or it could have been longer. All right, now Daniel is his Hebrew name, Belteshazzar, his Babylonian name. He received a vision and understanding of it, even though it was a very long period in fulfillment. He was grieved with what he understood, and he wanted further clarification on it. Verse 2 says, In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning, how long? Three full weeks. How much is three weeks? 21 days, right? And so he was mourning about this. Now that's interesting that he's mourning. What's going on during that time? Well, for three weeks, Daniel was grieved over the things that he saw and heard in chapter 9. Now he may have understood them, but he knew the negative aspects of it, and that was eating at him. And especially about this abomination that makes desolate and the rejection and death of the Messiah to come. It pained him deeply because he knew that this was affecting God's people, and he loved God's people. Number three, I ate no pleasant bread. Neither came flesh nor wine to my mouth. Neither did I anoint myself at all until three weeks were fulfilled. In plain words, he was fasting. He didn't take a bath or anything. Probably dressed in sackcloth as many of the prophets and those who were in grief often did. Now with fasting, prayer, and humility, Daniel entreats the Lord for greater understanding of the things that had been told him. He knew there was more to the story than what he had seen. Verse 4, And in the four and twentieth day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, which is Hedekal. Now, Hedekal, that's another name, an ancient name for the Tigris River. And notice here, it says, And in the twenty-fourth day of the first month, he was beside the river Hedekal, which is the Tigris River. 
the same river that's mentioned in chapter 12. And so we find now as we go to verses 5 through 9, the vision of the heavenly messenger comes to him. Verse 5, Then I lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold of Euphes. Now, fine gold and long linen. Hmm. Look at this description. You see, the clothing that's being described here is very similar to what John saw in Revelation 1.13. It mentions similar garments upon Christ at his appearing to John in his vision. So maybe Daniel is seeing the same person that John saw, you see. And oftentimes the clothing, of course, the garment represents the righteousness, right? He's seeing the character of the Messiah coming through. Look at verse 6. His body also was like beryl. Now, beryl is kind of a, a bluish color. I have some beryl. It's, uh, it's a light blue. But anyway, and his face as the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms and his feet like in color to polished brass, and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. When he spoke, I can imagine his voice rolling out like thunder across the room. His appearance, well, the language is similar to Jesus' appearance to John in Romans 1.15. His voice was mighty and echoed through the heavens and earth. And you will find oftentimes in talking about the Messiah, the, uh, the Christ in Revelation, it talks about his voice rolling through and being like thunder. Look at verse 7. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men that were with me saw not the vision, but a great quaking fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. He apparently had a group of people around him. He could see the vision. They could not. And that doesn't mean that they didn't know something was happening. Look, even though other men were with Daniel, only he saw the vision. However, they knew something miraculous was happening since they were physically affected and they fled from him. Remember St. Paul. At Paul's Damascus experience with Christ in Acts 9-7, Paul alone saw the vision. But those that were with him, they experienced a physical effect. We find that they could hear a voice, but they couldn't understand what was being said. So there's a similarity between Paul's experience and that of Daniel. Look at verse 8. Therefore, I was left alone and saw this great vision, and there remained no strength in me, for my comeliness was turned in me into corruption, and I retained no strength. Alone. Hmm. Daniel felt weak. He felt faint in the presence of this vision. His countenance changed and he lost all his strength. Now, this is not uncommon. This happened to the uh, other prophets 
in the scriptures, similar things. Look at verse 9. Yet heard I the voice of his words, and when I heard the voice of his words, then was I in a deep sleep on my face, and my face toward the ground. So he went down on his haunches with his face right down in the ground. He was asleep, but that doesn't mean he was unconscious of what was happening. Even though Daniel could hear what was said in the vision, he was asleep with his face toward the ground. Symbolically, he was cut off from his surroundings. Now, with your face to the ground, when you put your head on the ground, that's a symbolism for deep humility. That's actually the position of death, isn't it? When a person dies, as far as they can go is the ground. And the Lord can speak to his servants in visions with the prophet's eyes open or with them shut in sleep. And either way, the Lord can use as a means of communication. Frequently, they would have a change in their strength. Now, verses 10 through 17, here we find the touch of the heavenly messenger comes in. Look at verse 10. And behold... And hand touched me, which set me upon my knees and upon the palms of my hands. Now he was on his face. Now this angel touches him, and he comes up on all fours. He's working his way to an upright position. The heavenly messenger touched Daniel and set him up on all fours. His Hands and his knees were likely touching the ground at this point. Look at verse 11. And he said unto me, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved, understand the words which I speak unto thee, and stand upright, for unto thee am I now sent. And when he had spoken this word unto me, I stood trembling. Now, there may be several reasons for this. Number one, he probably wanted to look at him face to face. Another reason is the angel that's talking to him now, the first one we talked about was the Messiah, the Christ. This other one was probably Gabriel, a created being. You're not supposed to bow down to a created being. So what does the angel say? He says, Daniel, get up. But Daniel's still pretty, pretty uh, frightened being in the presence of a holy angel, especially one like Gabriel. Daniel is now commanded to stand upright, though he is still trembling in the presence of the one in the vision. He's assured that he is greatly loved, and he need not fear the wrath of God upon him. He will now receive instruction about the things that concern him, Plus, he'll get further details about it. Look at verse 12. Then said he unto me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself before thy God, thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. I'm here because of your prayer, Daniel. I'm here in answer to your prayer. And 
from the very moment that you started praying 21 days ago, the Lord commissioned me to come. Then why did it take him so long to get there? Before we talked about Gabriel coming down to the earth, and it was, I mean, Daniel's prayer was only about three minutes long, and he was there twiddling his thumbs, waiting for Daniel to finish praying. So he could get there quicker. Why did he take 21 days? He tells us why. Daniel said in verse 2 that he had been mourning for the matters that he had seen in the vision three whole weeks. The angel said that from the first, which was three weeks ago, Daniel's prayer was heard and accepted in heaven. The angel intended to come to him right away, but he got sidetracked. He got delayed. Verse 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. Now notice he says the prince of Persia. He doesn't say the king of Persia, but the prince of Persia. That's important. We'll come back to that. Uh, And he said, but lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. And I remained there with the kings of Persia. Huh, something's going on here. We find that here the angel said, I meant to come, but I got sidetracked because the prince of Persia and I got into a debate. And it also mentions the king of Persia. And then it talks about Michael, one of the chief princes. What's he talking about here? And who is this Michael that it's referring to? First, let's look at Michael. Daniel had been wondering when and how the Persians would free his people to return home to rebuild the temple at Jerusalem. That's what was really gnawing at him. Satan was seeking to keep King Cyrus and later on King Darius I, not the Mede, but the Persian Darius, from fulfilling God's will. So the devil's trying to stall what God's plan was. A great controversy went on for three weeks between Gabriel and Satan over whether or not the king should let these people go. And it was a battle for the mind of the kings of Persia. Who would they hearken to? Finally, Michael, the commander-in-chief of the angels, the protector of God's people, comes to Gabriel's aid, and he commands Satan to back off. He had to comply when Michael spoke. Because even today, Michael still has authority over the fallen angels as well as the good angels. And when Jesus comes back again, he speaks with the voice of the archangel. And the devil has to back off. Didn't he say, didn't he say when he was talking to Peter, Peter was trying to get him to do something that he didn't want to do? He said, get thee behind me, Satan. He was looking at Peter, but he was looking at the prince of darkness behind him and rebuking him, and he had to back off. 
Now Gabriel returns to Daniel to address his concerns. The forces of which we are not aware are at work for our salvation behind the scenes. All of this stuff is taking place in this chapter 10. Look at 10.14. Now I am come to make thee understand what shall befall thy people in latter days. For yet the vision is for many days. Daniel, you're not going to be around when all this stuff takes place. But I'm here to let you know what will happen to God's people. Well, that's the very thing that Daniel wanted to know. He talks about the latter days. That means from the time of Daniel moving forward to end times. Look at verse 15. And when he had spoken such words unto me, I set my face toward the ground, and I became dumb. He just he went back down, you know, turns his face to the ground, and he couldn't speak. Uh, he was just so overcome with it. Once again, Daniel falls to the ground in a sign of humility. He couldn't speak, but he's still listening. He's listening carefully. Look at verse 16. And behold, one like the similitude of the sons of men touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spake and said unto him that uh, stood before me, O my Lord, by the vision my sorrows are uh, turned upon me, and I have retained no strength. Now it's interesting. He touches his lip. Jeremiah, when he was called to be a prophet, Jeremiah said, oh, I can't speak. You know? And the Lord goes over and he takes some coal, hot coals, and he touches his lips with it. And he says, I'm putting my words in your mouth. He's purifying him so that he can speak in his behalf. By touching Daniel's lips, the angel was both purifying his, his sinful mouth and also restoring to him the gift of speech and the ability to explain these things. He tells of his concern to know more about the previous visions which he has seen in chapter 8 and chapter 9. Now, we're over in chapter 10 now, but he's still reflecting back. Chapter 11 had a lot of history that would take place. He wasn't worried about that so much because that was way down the line. He was concerned about when this stuff starts and especially how they attacked. He didn't care about Cleopatra. He was concerned about this abomination that would make the temple in heaven and the temple of God obsolete and would cause an abomination to come upon it. That real was bugging him. Look at 10.17. For now can the servant of this my Lord talk with this my Lord. For as for me, straightway there remained no strength in me, neither is there breath left in me. Now this is interesting. Not only did he lose strength, but now he is given strength. He is also able to speak 
even though he wasn't breathing. Notice the physical phenomena that's coming to this prophet. We see evidence of this in other prophets as well. And notice that Daniel was speaking, but no breath was in him. Sometimes prophets, uh, when in vision, cannot breathe for considerable periods of time, even though they are aware of and interact with the vision. They may be talking in the vision, but nothing's coming out of their mouth, breath-wise. Interestingly enough, E.G. White also had that experience, which is documented. While in vision, they even held a candle up before her, and the flame didn't even flicker. This was not uncommon. It's now strengthening by this heavenly messenger. 18 through 21 speaks of it. Look at 18. Then there came again and touched me, one like the appearance of a man, and he strengthened me. He gave me strength. Sometimes they'll go from no strength to super strength. Notice also that God gives specific strength to the prophet, though it may not be natural for him to have it. Documented cases of E.G. White holding a very heavy Bible for a long period of time while in poor, weak, physical health is an example of this. As a matter of fact, while she was talking and not breathing, holding up this Bible, she would even reach up and point to the exact text she was talking about without looking at it. She would turn the page, and then as she spoke, she would point to another text, and they'd look at it, and it would be the exact text that she was quoting. My friends, I've seen that Bible, and believe me, I know I'm not a muscle man, but I had trouble holding that out for more than just a few seconds. Can you imagine holding that up for a long period of time? Look at Daniel 10:19. And said, "O man greatly beloved, fear not. Peace be unto thee. Be strong. Yea, be strong." I think he meant more than physically strong. I think he meant your spirit to be strong. And when he had spoken unto me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for thou hast strengthened me. He had been discouraged, but now he is fortified and encouraged. God gives us the ability to do whatever he calls us to do. Even when we do not have the native ability to do it. You may say, oh man, I don't... I, I, I would die before I'd get up front and speak before people. You know what? If God wants you to stand up and speak before people, he will give you the ability to do it. You see, God's callings are also his enablings. He will enable you to do what he asks you to do. We can't cop out of it. Look at 1020. Then said he, knowest thou? Wherefore I come unto thee, play with you know why I'm here, and how will I, and now will I return to fight with the prince of Persia, and when I am gone forth, lo, the prince of Grecia shall come. 
All right, what's he saying? He says, I'm here to give you a message, but I got to get back to work. I got to get back and uh, contend with Lucifer, with Satan. Why? Are you sure he backed off on the king of Persia? But the king of Greece is going to come. And Satan is going to try to get the king of Greece to persecute God's people as well. And so we find that it is not the king of Persia and Greece that the angel is striving with. It's the prince of Persia and Greece. Both of these nations would oppress God's people under Satan's influence. The angel of the Lord is on duty to reverse and to neutralize the power of Satan so that the will of God will prevail. Here also Daniel is reassured that Greece would follow Persia as a world power as foretold in Daniel 2. You see this repeat and expand? He's again verifying what he told him in Daniel 2. God is true to his word. Daniel 10.21 But I will show thee that which is noted in the scripture of truth. And there is none that holdeth with me in these things but Michael your prince. Now notice Michael your prince. That's important. Michael your prince. I'm the only one of the angels that is fighting against Satan to get your release. The only other one is Michael. Now, this Michael who comes in plays a key role, and this is the reason why chapter 10 and chapter 12 are connected, because they both speak about Michael. You don't find Michael popping up in the earlier text, but here in 10 and 12, he pops up. The scriptures are called truth, notice. Thy word is truth. They are to be read and believed as truth, because God is faithful. Now, notice the only Michael, the protector of, that only Michael, the protector of God's people, supports Gabriel in the struggle for the fulfillment of prophecy. He alone can ward off Satan since he is still commander over the angelic beings and above them in rank and power. And so we find that Michael, which we'll run into in chapter 12 a little bit more, he has a very special part to play in this whole thing. So we come to the end of chapter 10. I want to quickly summarize it, okay? First off, Daniel is worried for three weeks and fasts to understand the prophecies of Daniel 8 and 9. Gabriel finally comes after a three-week delay struggling with Satan over the Persian king's mind to deliver God's people. Only Michael can break the deadlock and ward off Satan. Daniel is strengthened to understand the vision manifesting strange phenomena. Daniel is assured that already heaven is working on Greece while Persia is still in power, showing that God knows and is invoking the future ahead of time. 
God's already preparing for what's coming. The scriptures are upheld as truth, and Michael, who is Christ, is in command even over Satan. And I think it's only appropriate you have your quiz sheet. I'm going to give you a quick quiz as a part of review, okay? Use half of your sheet of paper because I'm going to give you one on 12 too. So you can put your answers on one side and then on the other side for the other one, okay? All right, really quick. Number one, true, false. Daniel was fasting two weeks, true or false? Number two, the angel struggled with Satan for three weeks over the mind of the king, true or false? Number three, Gabriel is commander-in-chief of the angels, even over Satan, true or false? Number four, the power that follows Persia is Greece, over which heavenly forces struggle to influence, true or false? Number five, the scriptures are called truth, true or false? Then your bonus question, number six, other men were with Daniel, but fled when the vision came, true or false? All right, here are the answers. Number one, the answer is false. Daniel was fasting for three weeks, not two weeks. Number two, it is true the angel struggled with Satan for three weeks over the mind of the king. Number three is false. Gabriel is not the commander-in-chief. It is Michael who's the commander-in-chief over the angels. Number four, the power that follows Greece, I mean Persia, is Greece, over which heavenly forces struggle to influence. That's true. And number five is true. The scriptures are called truth. Number six, other men were with Daniel but fled when the vision came. That also is truth. So anybody get all of them right? Good for you. Good for you. I'm going now to skip down to chapter 12. And we will pick up our story from there. Chapter 12. As we begin our 12th chapter, notice we're going to pick up with the Michael theme. Look at verses 1 through 3. And it says this. Because it's talking about a time of trouble. There's going to be conflict taking place. God's people would suffer under the Babylonians They were going to suffer on the Persians. And now Satan's going to give them a hard time under the Greeks. He's going to repeat that with the Romans and right on down to the end of time, isn't he? And look what it says in chapter 12, verse 1. And at this time shall Michael stand up. Now that's significant. When Jesus went to heaven, he went into the holy place. And he sat down at the right hand of the Father. And all while he's in the holy place of the heavenly sanctuary, where the daily forgiveness of sins, individual sins, takes place, he is sitting down at the right hand of the Father. When he stands up, it's the end of his work in the holy place, 
and he moves into the most holy place to begin the final day of atonement. And so we see here that now he's moving on ahead because Daniel was concerned about this abomination that makes desolate. What would it be that he's talking about that would make desolate Jesus' work in the holy place of the heavenly sanctuary? And so he's touching on that. And it says, And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. Notice, which standeth for the children of thy people. Michael has always been considered the protector of God's people. The Jews always thought of Michael as the one who protected the people of God. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. What is the book? The book of life, indicating the judgment. Now, Michael, the name Michael actually means the one like God or who is like God. Who is the only one like God? It's the Son of God, the second member of the Godhead. He is called the one like God. He is also the head over the angel. That's what the word archangel means. So he is the one who is like God, who is in charge of all the angels. That's why when he comes back again, he speaks with the voice of the archangel. And the angels go down and gather up the saints and the devil has to back off. Jesus declares himself also as the son of man. That was also a messianic term. Now, Rabbi Akiba, he was alive when Israel as a nation fell. Not at the time of the fall of the temple, but when Israel as a nation fell. Rabbi Akiba, he was born about 50 AD, and he died in 132 when the Romans came in to put down the the, uh, Jewish rebellion. And like some of the the other teachers, he viewed that the Messiah, the one like unto the Son of Man, occupied the other thrones when he was ushered into the heavenly court. Whenever the Messiah was in the heavenly court, he sat down on the other throne. You see, what is the other throne? That seems to indicate that there are two thrones in heaven, Where would that be? That would be in the holy place. So even unbelieving, Akiba did not accept Jesus as the Messiah, but he taught that there were two thrones in heaven, one for the Messiah and one for God. And by saying that one of the thrones was for David, which was a classic name for the Messiah, Rabbi Akiba obviously meant the King Messiah a descendant and heir of King David's throne in perpetuity. All right, now the protector. Many of the ancient rabbis taught that Michael was the protector of God's people. Many also equated him with the Messiah. So whoever was the Messiah was also Michael, the one who was the anointed deliverer. And in Daniel 10.13 
Satan had to back off when Michael came to Gabriel's assistance in persuading King Cyrus to let God's people return home and rebuild the temple. Oh, the devil didn't give up. He backed off. But he came back again and tried to keep Darius I from fulfilling God's will. He'll be back again, and each time Gabriel's there to push him back, and if he doesn't move for Gabriel, Michael goes in and says, hey, out of here. And he has to back off. He even, over the body of Moses, it says that Michael and uh, Satan were contending over the body of Moses in the book of Jude. And finally, when Michael said, Satan, I'm not even going to discuss the matter with you. Back off. And he had to do that so that he could resurrect Moses. So we see here in Daniel 12, 1, Michael uh, rises to the defense of his people after the heavenly sanctuary work is finished. And he comes to deliver them from their great time of trouble. So what happens? After the holy part of the temple work is done, he stands up to go into the most holy place to receive the people unto himself. During that time, the devil's going to be carrying on down here. He's going to be trying to discourage and wipe out God's people. At the time of the end, he will stand up implying that he was sitting before and in the holy place of the heavenly temple before finally receiving his dominion after the judgment. Now, commenting on 7.9, Dr. Judas Slotky, an able Jewish scholar, has aptly commented on verse 9. He says, Some hold that there were only two thrones, one for God and the other for the Messiah. Now, this is a Jewish rabbi who is speaking. He recognized this. Look at Daniel 12.2. By the way, that's what the two piles of bread symbolize on the uh, table of showbread, which is on the side of the north, which is the side of the north is where the devil wanted to boot Christ and the Father both off the throne and rule supremely. You see, the devil wanted people to come to him for forgiveness, but he didn't want anything to do with the most holy place because that's where judgment takes place. The devil didn't want to be judged, but he wanted to be the one that would forgive their sins and he would set up a priesthood that would forgive men's sins so that they wouldn't come to the Messiah in the heavenly sanctuary for forgiveness. This is what was upsetting Daniel because Daniel knew that the Romans would be the abomination that makes desolate. He may not have known them by name, but he knew them by their actions or by their description as given in the visions that he had earlier. And so we find in 12.2 it says, And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. You see, Daniel has now moved all the way down to the end of time. He's talking about the final judgment. He's actually even going beyond the most holy judgment. 
he's now talking about when Christ comes back to gather his people. He's talking about two resurrections that are separated by a thousand years. This particular text doesn't bring that in. But notice the first resurrection of the righteous to eternal life. That comes first. Then there's a thousand years, and there's a second resurrection. The resurrection of the wicked to eternal abhorrence or contempt. And we see also Isaiah 66, 24, Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6, support that concept. Look at verse 3. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. These are the people who will be the ones who will be redeemed. Now, as we come to verse 4, he starts talking about a seal. Now, he's not talking about the little animal, you know. He's talking about the seal of God. What's he talking about? Verse 4. But thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book. The words you've written, you're going to close the book and you're going to lock it and put a seal on it, a stamp. Even to the time of the end, that book would not be understood in its fullness until the time of the end. The book of Daniel is a closed book at this point that we're talking about. But when you get to the book of Revelation, Revelation is not sealed. It has never been sealed. The book of Revelation is an open book. That's what reveal means. What is it revealing? It's revealing what was closed in Daniel, which is now being opened, you see. And it says, many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. Well, of course, that can apply to rockets and computers and everything else. And they're increasing and abounding uh, today. But this has a, a specific purpose, specific meaning. It means that many will search all over, but their knowledge and understanding of the Word of God will increase in the last days. What does that mean? Could it possibly be that even the writings of Daniel would be understood in the last days and their knowledge of it? Note that the vision of Daniel is sealed until the time of the end. That's the time in which we live. That couldn't happen until after the fulfillment of the 1260 years of papal persecution, which ended in 1798. And the 2300 year prophecy, which ended in 1844. You see, that there would no longer be time prophecy after that. 1844 is the end of all biblical time prophecy. Those who say, well, in the year, you know, uh, 2020, the Bible says the Lord is going to come. Uh Uh-uh. The last time prophecy was fulfilled in 1844. From that time on, it says... Time shall be no more. Now, it doesn't mean you're all going to die. What does it mean? Time shall be no more. Time prophecy will be no more. 
because we're beyond the 1844 and you're still alive as far as I know. But the prophecy would come to an end. Therefore, Jesus could come at any point depending on whether or not the people of God start taking the gospel to the world. So what's it really depending on? Whether or not we're doing our job properly. We can hasten the return of the Lord. And as we start getting on the ball and taking the gospel to the world, the devil isn't going to like it. And his attacks are going to increase. So therefore, folks think, well, I don't like being persecuted, therefore I won't take the gospel to the world. Yeah, okay, well, we can sit back, but think of all the misery and the the generations that are lost because of our negligence. So this is what it's referring to. The end times had begun with the investigative judgment because after Christ came out of the most holy place, during the time he's in the heavenly sanctuary, both more holy and most holy place, but in particular the most holy place, the books are being examined. The lives of the people are being reviewed. This is the time the judgment begins with the house of God, the people of God. It begins with the saved, and then it moves to the lost. It begins with those earlier generations and moves to the end time people. Whenever he moves over to those who are alive today, it doesn't tell us. But this is called the investigative judgment. The pre-advent judgment. The judgment that takes place between 1844 and whenever Jesus comes. Because when he comes back, he comes back for those he has judged worthy to go with him. Now notice, about this same time, 1798. Now that's when the papacy fell and the 1260-year prophecy came to an end. About this same time, the Rosetta Stone was found and people began to start reading the book of Daniel with earnestness in light of fulfilled prophecy. I don't know if it was here or it was another meeting. I brought the latest biblical archaeology magazine. And in there, it was telling that archaeologists are verifying the actual existence of many of the people that are mentioned in the scripture, especially in the book of Daniel. They are verifying it. Well, the Bible said it, but secular history couldn't find evidence for it. But now they are. You see, our knowledge is increasing as men are searching to and fro. And notice, too, that Revelation 22.10 and Amos 8.12 depict end-time prophecies. So, Revelation is not sealed. It's open for our study, and we should be studying it. Daniel and Revelation go together hand in glove. We must understand the book of Daniel before we can understand the book of Revelation because Daniel gives us the keys to understand Revelation. Now, what about verses 5 through 13? This deals with questions regarding the great time of trouble. Daniel 12.5 says, Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, there stood other two 
mean two other individuals. The one on this side of the bank of the river, the other on that side of the bank of the river. This refers back to Daniel's comments in Daniel 10.4. And again, he's at the Tigris River here, the Hidikal. Notice in 12.6, And one said to the man clothed in linen, that was Christ he's speaking to, which was upon the waters of the river, how long will it be to the end of these wonders? Now, that is the main question. That's the thing that Daniel is thinking. How long will it be to this terrible power that is killing and destroying God's people is destroyed himself? When will the end be? Remember when it talks about the saints under the altar in the book of Revelation? What are they saying? How long? That's the question. Of course, That was symbolic, not literal. But how long will these things be? And in Daniel 8.13, it says, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation? The giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. How long will it be before this power that claims it can forgive sins and it can trample on and persecute God's people? And burn them at the stake. Feed them to lions. How long will it be before this power is taken out of the way? How long before the final judgment? Look at 12.8. My Lord, what shall be the end of these things? When's it all going to come to an end? 12.7. And I heard the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand unto heaven. You know, when you go to court, they ask you to raise your right hand, and I don't know if they still do, but they'd have you put your hand on the Bible. And in Muslim countries, they put it on the Quran. But you, you raise your right hand, and you make a vow, right? You take an oath. This is what's happening here. But he not only puts up his right hand, he puts them both up. And notice what it says here. When he held up his right hand and his left hand unto heaven and swear by him that liveth forever that it shall be for a time, times, and half time. Okay? And when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people, All these things shall be finished. Time, time, half time. We talked about that previously. A time calculates out to 360 days using the Hebrew year. Times would be double that. 360, double that is what? uh, 720, right? Half time would be half of 360. That would be 180. You add up 360, 720, and 180, and you come up to 1,260 years. From the time that the papal persecutions began in 538 until the Pope is arrested and they stop 
1798 is exactly 1260 years. Notice he takes an oath. Hebrews 6, 13, chapters 7, 20, and 21 also say that Christ swears an oath of promise to be our high priest. He takes an oath by himself. I swear by myself that I will be your high priest. Why? There is none other higher that he can swear by. Now you may say, well, why didn't he swear by God? Because God the Father, because God had turned the whole judgment over to the Son. Don't forget, God's character is coming under attack too. And so the judgment is turned over to the Son. So he's saying, I can't swear by anybody higher, therefore I swear by myself. Now, you've got to remember that if you take an oath in Scripture, you need to fulfill it. Even if it's to your own hurt, you need to fulfill it. Unless it's an, an unwise one that contradicts the Word of God. If it contradicts the Word of God, then you need to ask God's forgiveness. But if you say to someone, oh, I'll let you take $20, then you think afterwards, maybe I shouldn't do that. If you gave your word, you need to fulfill it, even if it's to your disadvantage, you see. And here, he is taking an oath, even if it means his own death, to do it. Now, it shows us how to calculate in this slide. The 360 is a time, 360 years, Times, a day is a year, don't forget, in apocalyptic prophecy. Times would be 720 years. Half time would be 180 years. Add them together, that's 1,260 years. And you can see Daniel 8.24 on this. So when you add them, if it started in 538, add 1,260 years to that starting point, you come up to 1798. And so... That prophecy was fulfilled before 1844, you see. There's still a time gap that would take place here, which we'll touch on. Verse 8, And I heard, but I understood not. Then said I, O my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? I want to know what's going to be the final end of it. And Daniel didn't understand all of the various prophecies that he was recording. That's encouraging to me to know that Daniel didn't understand all this stuff. Because if you don't understand it, believe me, you understand a lot better than Daniel did. And he had Gabriel and even the Lord himself teaching that first Daniel seminar. And he was the only student. You probably know more about these prophecies than he did. He was curious to know when the end times would come. Verse 9. And he said, Go thy way, Daniel. For the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Till the time of the end. That implies that they would be understood in the time of the end. So Daniel, don't you get an ulcer over it. Because you'll be long gone by that time. The angel told him to go about his business. Since these events would not make sense until the end of earth's history which was still ahead of Daniel's time. Verse 10. Many shall be purified and make white and tried, 
but the wicked shall do wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. There are many today who are misrepresenting the prophecies of Daniel. You've got futurism, you've got preterism, you've got all kinds of concepts. Some people just make up their own interpretations. They are not among the wise. The wise are studying it from Scripture. They are studying it from the hermeneutic that the Scripture teaches, you see. The wicked would try to understand these prophecies, but only the wise in the Lord would be able to make sense of them. As they studied them in Christ and endeavored to obey them, that's the key, to obey them, God would give them wisdom. If you lack wisdom, ask of God. Now, why? Yeah, I want you to know that the devil's a good Bible student. He probably spends more time studying the Bible than you do. You see, the devil wants to know what's ahead because he knows his days are short. He knows his days are numbered and he wants to head the posse off at the pass. He wants to keep it from happening. And so the devil wanted to know what these things meant so that he could head them off and avert them. So it was with his human agents and so it is today with his human agents. Therefore, God codified. Now, the word codified means put it into symbols. He encrypted much of it so that those who would study the Bible would understand it. Not a casual reader of the Bible, but those who study it. That makes a difference between a Bible reader and a Bible student. Look at 12:11. And from the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away and the abomination that makes desolate set up, there shall be a thousand two hundred and ninety days or years. Now, wait a minute, preacher. I thought you just said there were no more prophecies after 1844. Now you're throwing another one at me. Well, I got news for you. I'm going to throw two at you, not just one. But does that mean that I was wrong? No, it doesn't. Why? Let's look. It says, from the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away, in plain words, wrestle out of the hands of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary, and this false priesthood, this false religion set up, it would be 1,290 days. From the papal alliance of church and state, when the state started to impose religion, Clovis, the king of the Franks, France is the first Catholic nation. In 508 AD, Clovis gave state approval to the priesthood and started to point to the priesthood as being the official mediators, if you want to say. And until it was the same French that set up the papacy, takes the papacy down under Berthier in 1798 and arrests the Pope. And notice, not 538, but Clovis did that in 508, 30 years earlier. So if you go from 508 to 1798, 
That's 1290 years, not 1260. It ends at the same time, but it just began a little earlier. So it was 30 years before the Pope could have the Franks and others eliminate the Arians and follow him to act as the corrector of heretics. Why? Because even though Clovis said, you are the official leader of the church in 508, Rome was surrounded by Arians who did not obey the papacy. And it took 30 years for him to throw them off so that he could officially exercise that role. That's why the 30-year gap. And thus, the 1260 and the 1290 both ended in 1798 because you're starting from a different beginning point. Look at 1212. Blessed is he that waiteth and come to the thousand three hundred five and thirty days. Huh, 1335. We've just thrown in another prophecy here. But if time prophecy doesn't go beyond 1844, shouldn't this prophecy end before 1844? Let's look. From 508 with Clovis and the Franks making an alliance of church and state, the blending of church and state, setting up the political power of the priesthood until 1843-1844. The investigative judgment or represented in the Feast of Trumpets when Christ's priestly work in the holy place ended and he entered the most holy place is 1,335 years. So if you begin at 508 with Clovis and you calculate 1,335 to the time that Christ goes into the most holy place, it brings you up to the year 1844, which is 1,335 years. You see, he nails it down. He answers Daniel's question. When will this abomination come to an end? When will the judgment begin? Daniel finally gets his answer. You see. It's taken him 12 chapters to do it. But he did it for our benefit. 12.13 says, But go thou thy way till the end be. For thou shalt rest. You're going to go to sleep, Daniel. You're going to die. But notice what he says. He guarantees him a place of the resurrection of the righteous. He says, thou shalt rest and stand in thy lot at the end of the days. When the Messiah comes back again to resurrect his sleeping saints, Daniel, you're going to be there. And all of this stuff will then make sense to you. Daniel is told that he would die but that he would be resurrected in that first resurrection of the righteous. When all the prophecies are passed and the Messiah calls him forth from his grave to eternal life. And thus we come to the end of the book of Daniel. We started long ago with Daniel being taken captive and Jerusalem falling. The people of God are losers as we open the book. But now the people of God are victorious and are redeemed 
And now it's not an earthly Jerusalem that fell. It's now a heavenly Jerusalem that is their inheritance. And so Daniel 12, like Daniel 10, is written during the time of King Cyrus, the Persian. Both chapters speak of Michael, the protector and defender of God's people, who would deliver the captives from bondage and bring judgment. Two more prophecies elaborate on the already given 1290 and 1335-year prophecies. Daniel does not understand all he writes, but he is told not to worry about it. He'll understand it. Don't worry about it in your day. And Daniel is assured that he will have a part in that promised resurrection. The question is, will you have a part in that resurrection? Will you have the kind of faith, the enduring faith that Daniel had, even when you don't understand everything? How many of you want to have that kind of faith? By the grace of God, that's the kind of faith that will bring victory. And may we have victory. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can have victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank you for this book of Daniel. And may we be ready for your coming. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to give you a quick last quiz. It wouldn't be fair if I didn't. Okay? Number one, the great prince who will stand up for God's people and deliver them is known as what in this chapter? What is his name called in this chapter? Number two, chapter 12 is connected with what other chapter? Number three, the book of Daniel was an open book, true or false? Number four, Daniel fully understood the visions, true or false? Number five, the 1260-year prophecy begins at what date? That's the 1260. And then the bonus question number six, the 1335-year prophecy began with Clovis and a political alliance with Rome in 508 A.D. It ended in the year what A.D.? This one probably makes you think more than the other one did, the other quiz. Okay, real quick. The great prince is Michael. Number two, chapter 12 is connected with chapter 10 because it starts speaking about Michael and what he was going to do in judgment and answers Daniel's questions. Number three, the book of Daniel was an open book, false, it was sealed. Daniel fully understood the visions. False. Number five, the 1260-year prophecy began in 538 A.D. And the last one, the 1335 prophecy, began with Clovis and a political alliance with Rome in 508 and ended in the year 1844. Our homework assignment, I'm still giving you a homework assignment, Reread the book of Daniel, and you'll look at it this time, I think, with different eyes than you did before we started our seminar. May God bless you, and let's have prayer. 
Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your blessing. Give us a safe journey as we travel home. And we give you the praise and the glory for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Peace.